You're listening to our Southside Baptist Church podcast. For more audio content, please refer to our website. This is baptistchurch.com. Amen. While the children are making their way to worship, I want to uh, get you to turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. And uh, let me remind you that we were or will be receiving the Annie Armstrong offering for home missions and want you to pray about what God would have you to give. I want to ask you a question, a couple of maybe three questions this morning. Have you ever felt in your life that you were under under a satanic attack? Have you ever felt like, have you ever in your life felt like I'm under an attack by Satan himself? I'm under a satanic attack right now. Question two, did you feel your faith was being threatened? That you felt like your faith was under attack, that you were barely hanging on, that you almost, um, you felt like your resilience was beginning to slip and, and, and you were afraid, you felt like you were going down, you were possibly beginning to lose faith. Uh, you were beginning to say, God, if you're real, If you're really there, God, I need you to intervene right now. Because as the old black man said one day, Lord, your property is in trouble. Have you ever felt like you were under a satanic attack? You ever felt like your faith was being threatened to the degree that you were afraid that you you weren't going to be able to hang on? Um, you felt like I did when I was in the second grade and I was drowning and there was nothing under my feet and I felt like I was just, I was at the point of death. Question number three, how do you build resilience to stand against the enemy? You ever thought about that? I'm not talking about resilience to be able to stand up under relational problems and I'm not talking about resilience to stand up when you've been fired from your job because you stood for what was right. I'm not talking about resilience or the ability to bounce back when, when, when friends uh, hurt you and things go wrong in your life. I'm talking about how do you have resilience, courage, and strength to face your enemy, Satan. That kind of resilience. I want you to look here at Luke chapter 22, beginning at verse 31. Because in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Jesus is going to enter into a conversation with Peter. And um, if, if you look back up at 24, in fact, let's just pick up at verse 24, get a running start. Also a dispute arose among them, the disciples, as to which of them was considered to be what? To be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. Those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not like, or you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? 
but I am among you as one who serves. This is Jesus talking here. He's saying, I'm not sitting at the table and people are serving me. He said, I am serving those that are seated at the table. Verse 28, you are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of, of Israel. In other words, you're sitting here dabbling over and positioning, jockeying for position when one day you'll be seated in heaven. And then he turns, now watch this, verse 31, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have what? But I have prayed for you. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not, what? Fail. That's what the enemy's after, right? And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. When you've repented, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I, I am ready. I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered. I tell you, Peter... Before the cock crows today. Look at me, Peter. You will deny me three times. Listen. Listen, Peter. The enemy's after you. And you must understand and listen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you love us. And Lord, as we look at this event in the life of Peter, we're reminded of how critical a moment it was. As Jesus is preparing to go to the cross, as he's trying to once again get the attention of the disciples and this one who leads these men to recognize that he is under the threat of the enemy, and we all are. And we can't battle against our enemy, Satan, with the normal tools that we would use in the normal conflicts of day-to-day -day life. We need a spiritual army. We need the help of spiritual tools of warfare in order to stand against our enemy, Satan. And oh, he is our enemy. So Lord, give us wisdom to see what you want us to see. Lord, forgive me, cleanse me, let me be a tool in your hand, and Lord, we'll give you all the glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Let me give you just a little bit, a couple of things as far as Luke 22. Number one, background. The background is, th is this. Jesus is days away from Calvary. He's, he's days away from the cross. He, he, is, he is getting ready to go to the cross, and eventually he'll ascend into heaven. And I want you to understand this. Jesus will no longer physically, in a physical form, be there. 
Okay, everybody understand that? Say amen. So Jesus is trying to help these disciples understand that physically, I'm not going to be here. We're not going to be able to look eye to eye. As 1 John 1 says, John said, I, we saw him with our eyes, we heard him with our ears, we looked at him. We, John said, hey, listen, we were able to identify physically with him. You ever think about, man, I'd give anything to physically put my arms around Jesus. The man, I can't remember his last name, Jonathan, he uh, plays the role of Jesus in this series called The Chosen. It's nearing half a billion people that have seen this. He's traveling around the world. His sister weeps and cries as she talks about when this man was a boy, he said that he would, he made a, after seeing the life of Christ, he made an instrument like a cross, a cross beam, and he would carry it around in the yard as a child. His sister said this, he always had this propensity, this desire to identify with Christ. Jonathan, who plays the role of Jesus in the Chosen series, says that he finds himself, it's an awkward position, where in other parts of the world, people will come up weeping, and they say, I just want to touch you. And his thought is, but who am I? I listened to that, and I thought, well, you know, that's the way the world should be about you and I. We so are identified with Christ. The Holy Spirit is so apart. We're living under the Lordship of Christ that people, they, they want to be near us. They want to touch us. Sheila and I were in Cracker Barrel yesterday and a waitress came over and we said, we prayed for you. She knew who we were. She said, and I said to her, I said, we prayed for you. I put my hand on, our sh on her shoulder and she looked and she said, please don't stop as if she were begging us to continue to pray for her. Jesus was on his way to the cross, and he needed these disciples to listen. And he starts off, look at this, look at verse 31, Simon, Simon, Satan has what? Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. One writer said a better translation is this. Satan has obtained, listen to this, Satan has obtained his request. In other words, Satan has asked Jesus, Simon, to sift you, deceive you like wheat, to knock away the husk, to do something. Literally, the word means in the Greek to destroy you. Satan, imagine Jesus looking at you and saying, you're getting ready to go through a trial, and I want you to know this, me and the, me and the devil, Satan, Diabolos, the devil, we've had a conversation, and the devil wants, he's asked to destroy you. Listen to what one writer said. He went farther. He said, Satan has, has obtained his request no, he said what Jesus was actually saying, Satan has a hold of you right now. It's in the plural in the Greek, and what Jesus was saying to the 12 or to the 11, he was saying this, Satan has control of all of you right now. He's received his request. 
And that's why Jesus is so adamant that Peter understand what is at stake. Resilience requires our ability to stand against our spiritual enemy, Satan, and to teach those that we love how to do the same. Let me give you some things to think about today. I've, I've written them down. Let me just, just number one, listen. Satan, listen to this, Satan will always attack what is a threat to the kingdom of darkness. Okay, I want you to listen. Satan will always attack what is a threat to, the, what is a threat to his kingdom of darkness. Satan has always attacked a godly life that is lived out in obedience, right? In other words, Satan will always attack an individual who is a threat to his kingdom. He'll always attack the individual who's living in obedience to the will of God, who is a threat to the kingdom of darkness. He's always attracted to that individual. So everybody look this way. If you are under a satanic attack right now, chances may be that you are a threat to the enemy and he's coming after you. Okay? The day, hey, look, there's some people the devil's not worried about at all. Right? He ain't worried about him. Number two, Satan, now listen, Satan cannot attack the believer without God's permission. Did you see that? Simon, Simon, Satan has asked. Satan's asked. He's, had, he's got, hey, listen to this. The devil has a prayer request. Jesus was saying, me and the devil were talking this morning, and he, had a, he has a prayer request. His prayer request, Peter, Simon, he uses his old name, kind of like when your mama calls you by your full name, and you know you're in trouble. In this case, when you, you see a name twice like that, it's, a terms, of, it's terms of endearment. Jesus loves Peter. Simon, Simon. Satan has asked. He's had a prayer request. He wants to sift you. He wants to destroy you. But I've prayed for you. Jesus said in John 10, 27 and 28, he said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Now listen to this. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Now everybody hang on to this so no one can snatch them out of my hand. Hold your hand like that. I remember when I would do a, a children's sermon at the front of the church and I'd put a quarter in my hand. That was back 40 years plus of doing ministry. A quarter used to be worth something and I'd put a quarter in my hand and I would look at those children gathered around me and I would say how many of you want this quarter I said we'll try to get it out of out of my hand now, I was a lot bigger and stronger back 30 years ago before I got sick and and they would sit there and all them kids they'd sit there and they'd try to peel a finger back and they'd work so hard and it would come to no use whatsoever do you know this everybody listen do you know that Jesus Christ says, I hold you in the palm of my hand and nothing, no one... Hey, listen, eternal security, not even you can open his hand and remove yourself. That's security. So everybody listen, the only way the enemy can get to you 
is through his hand. And the only way he can do that is for God to do that. I got some, I got some good news and a bad news. What do you want first? Bad news is, is that God opens his hand and allows the enemy to attack. The good news is he's always got the enemy on his leash. All right? So, so, the, so sometimes God gives permission. Satan gets his desire either by willful sin. Now, let me, let me say this. God will open his hand two ways. If you live in willful, or if I live in willful disobedience to the word of God, I want you to listen. Young people, are you listening? God will open his hand and allow the enemy to attack you. You may say, well, why, why would God do that? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, the Corinthian church had a man that was living in sexual relationships with his stepmother. Okay? And, and the church wasn't doing anything about it. He was living in immorality. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, you know what Paul says? Listen, Paul says about this man, he says to the church, he says, listen, Turn him over to the devil. When you and I live in habitual, willful disobedience, guess what God may do? God may open his hand and allow the enemy to attack you, attack me, because you know what God's doing? God is trying to do what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, 5. You know what Paul said? He said to the church, turn him over to the devil, listen, for the destruction of his flesh so that his soul will be saved. Every, hey, listen, God will only let you and I backslide a certain point and then God's going to go turn you over to the enemy. For the destruction of the flesh, so the soul will be saved. The only other time God will do that is in the case of, listen, is in the case of a man like Job. You remember? When the angels are standing before God at the throne of God and they're giving a report, and guess who's standing there? Satan, Diabolos, the devil, Lucifer. He's standing there. And you remember God begins to brag on Job, right? He's a godly man. He's, a, he's, he's transparent. He's real. He's blameless. He shuns evil. He fears God. He, he does what is right. And, and, and Satan goes, <laughs> Satan laughs and says, of course he does. You build a hedge around him. You give him everything that he wants. But let me have him. Open up your hand. Let me have him. And he'll curse you. And you remember, God opens up his hand. He tells Satan, take your best shot. He tells Satan, he says, Satan, this is what you can do. You take all this stuff and you can do this, this, and this, but don't harm the man. God still is in control. He's still sovereign even over his enemy. And then you remember Satan comes back and says, well, you know, skin for skin. Bottom line is, he'll do anything to save his own skin, to save his life. So remove the hedge around his, his life. Let me have him. You know what God's doing again? Look, look this way, God's. And you know what Satan does? Satan afflicts him from head to toe with sores and disease, and still he hangs on to his integrity. 
God sometimes allows the enemy to attack you and I. Either if we're in willful disobedience, number one, or we are a trophy of God's grace as mercy in, our, in the walk of a believer. Number four, here we have Satan going after the disciples, and more particularly Peter. He's going after the leader. In fact, there's a principle here. I wrote it down. Satan always goes after holiness that is lived out in the leader. Because if the leader falls, the damage will be much greater. Did you hear that, parent? You see, the, the, the enemy goes after those in positions of leadership. Because if, you, if you're a leader, if you have some authority, responsibility, then when you fall, you carry a lot of people with you. Right? Is that not true? You know, I, I wrote this down. Parent, if you make a renewed commitment to walk in faith and to, and, and to give your life totally and surrender to Christ, then you can get ready because the activity of the enemy is going to be far greater. Did you hear that, Mom and Dad? If you make a decision that you're going to read the Bible that you're going to pray for your children, that you're going to be in church, that you're going to be sold out to Christ, then you watch what's going to happen to you. The enemy's going to come after you with everything that he has. Why? Because if he can bring you down, then he'll bring down your children and your grandchildren and lineages yet to be born. Some of you in this room are breaking granddad's bent. Your parents are not in church. Your grandparents were not in church. Some of them were living in willful and are now living in willful, defiant disobedience. And the only thing is you standing in the way and breaking that bent and saying generationally, this will stop here. Goes no farther. Alcohol stops here. Adultery stops here. Drugs stop here. Drawing a circle and saying, you won't get to the next generation. Stops. It stops here. I'm breaking granddad's bent. Wow. You get ready. When you do that, oh, the enemy will come at everything. He'll come at ev with everything that he has to break you down. Simon, Simon, Satan has prayed. Satan has asked. Satan wants to sift you, to destroy you. But I pray for you. Number five, if you fail to teach your children spiritual warfare, you fail to remind them that they have a real spiritual enemy. And you, when you and I are raising children, and even in our own life, we have to constantly remind ourselves, I've got an enemy. We need to get up every morning. I've, hey, I've got a Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, but I've got an enemy. My kids have an enemy. My grandchildren have an enemy. So I'm going to mediate. I'm going to pray. I'm going to be praying for my children. I'm praying for my grandchildren. I'm praying for them. Uh, they've got a spiritual enemy, so I need, to, I need to begin to teach them out of Ephesians and help them to understand God's, God's tools of warfare to stand against the enemy. I, I, my children need to know that. I wrote this down, number five, if you fail to teach your children spiritual warfare, you fail to remind them that they have a spiritual enemy and his goal is to get them out of God's will for their life and to tie them up with the trinkets of the world. That's what the enemy wants to do. 
You know what the enemy wants to do in the life of your child? Even Emmett? The enemy's already studying Emmett? This newborn baby to Eric and, and Bethany? Already looking and beginning to figure out how he's going to attack this baby. It's not an enemy saying, whoa, wait a minute, hands off. We're going to leave Emmett alone, and we're going to leave Eric alone, and we're going to leave Bethany alone. And when he gets old enough, then we'll unleash attack. My friend, he's attacking that home. He's attacking that marriage, and he's going after that boy right now. And the only thing that stands between Satan himself doing everything that he can against Emmett is a godly dad on his knees, standing by that bedside, kneeling by that bed and praying over Emmett. Opening the Word of God in prayer, building a wall around Emmett. But oh my friend, how often do we never tell our children nothing? You need to get your education, you need to make a lot of money. You need to make a lot of money, you need to put it in a can, then you need to sit on it. And we get them called up in the tools of the enemy, and the enemy loves for us to get involved in the stuff of the world. Randy Alcorn, who wrote a book on heaven, also wrote a book called The Treasure Principle. He said this, 15%, listen to this, 15% of everything that Jesus said related to money and possessions. Jesus made more reference to money and possessions than he did to prayer and faith. He spoke more about money and possessions than, listen, hell and heaven combined. Why? Because he knows our enemy. In Luke chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, Jesus was led by Satan, and the Bible said in an instant he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. He said, you see this world? You see all the riches, the materialism, all this stuff? He said, I'll give it to you. It's all mine, and I can give it to whoever I want to give it to if you just bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, you shall worship no one but the Lord thy God. You'll have no other God before you. But my friend, let me tell you, I was looking at a documentary and it was talking about Elvis, it was talking about Michael Jackson, it was talking about Whitney Houston, it was talking about those men and women to whom literally have had the world. One man made this statement, a very prominent man. He said Elvis Presley said he would give anything to be able to go shopping, and he couldn't. And they were talking about in this documentary about Jonathan, the man who's playing Jesus and the chosen who's going to all over the world to speak and is getting to the point that he can't go anywhere. And he made this statement. He brought up Elvis Presley, Michael ja- Jackson, and some of these people. He said they had no freedom. They had no life. And Jonathan, the man who plays the part of Jesus, wept. Because when a woman comes up and hugs him and says, I just, I just wanted to hold you. I just wanted to hug you. I just, I'm just hurting so bad I'm dealing with cancer. My child's in rebellion or whatever it is. Jonathan said, I want to say, who am I? I'm nobody. I'm not Jesus. And I thought, oh yes, we are. We're the temple of his Holy Spirit. He lives in you. He lives in me. We may be the only Jesus some people ever see. You know, the Bible says in Colossians 3, 1 and 2, you know what Paul said? 
He said to the church in Colossae, he said, set your hearts, set your minds, set your affections on the things of God in heaven. Sometimes the only time we talk about heaven is when Grandma Meemaw dies. That's the truth. Heaven ought to be always on our conversation. Hey, hey, listen, you know what we ought to be doing sometimes? Sheila and I do. I wonder what they're doing in heaven right now. She'll look at me and she'll start laughing and say, I wonder what my mama is doing up in heaven. We'll start laughing and say, I bet our mama's having a conversation right now. Celia, they're probably up there talking to your parents right now. Teresa, they're probably talking to your mama. How many of you have lost a mom? Willie, your mom. Uh, how many of us have lost a parent? That it ever occurs to us to say, I wonder what they're doing in heaven right now. Because as Billy Graham said, heaven is a busy place. They're working. They're excited. And my friend, they're getting ready for you and I to come home. Number six, if you fail to walk your children through the spiritual armor of a believer, then my friend, they will, you are setting your children up for failure. They need the helmet of salvation to protect that. Salvation. They need, listen, your children need to know that they know that they are eternally secure in Christ. Sweet Caroline was in my office a moment ago. Her and Annalise and Caroline looked at me and was telling me something that had happened to her in school and her face just glowed. And I thought to myself, what's God going to do in her life? Where will she go? What will she be? But my friend, what is important is that Eric and Sarah are teaching her the helmet of salvation, which is this. When she prayed to receive Christ and she was baptized in that baptistry right there, she put a helmet, God put a helmet that would now protect the enemy from getting into here. The more she is told over and over again, where Sarah sometimes just laughs and looks at her and says, you know, I love you so much. I remember when you were baptized. I remember when you gave your life to Christ. I remember that conversation in the bedroom. I hey, listen, she's just nailing it down in that child's life so when the enemy attacks uh, eternal security and goes after her, she's got the helmet of salvation. Her eternal security is so secure in Christ that the enemy has no way to get into that. My friend, we need the spiritual armor. Number seven, Peter didn't listen. Did you notice that? You and I need to listen. Peter didn't listen. Jesus told Peter, he said, Peter, Satan is coming to destroy you. But I wrote this down, but what he means for evil... God will mean for good. You remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, 5? Paul said this, turn him over to the devil, listen, for the destruction of his flesh so that his soul will be saved. You know what God, you know what Jesus was saying to Peter? Peter, Satan had a prayer request this morning. He, he wants to destroy you. He wants to rip you apart. He wants to tear you down. Hey, and listen to what Jesus said. But I've prayed for you that what will not fail? Your faith. 
He said, I pray for you that your faith will not fail. And after you've come through this, strengthen your brothers. In other words, what Jesus was saying is, he's saying, Peter, Satan is asked to sift you, to tear you up, to destroy you. But listen, what he's actually going to do is in my hand, he's going to take some things out of your life that needed to go anyway. Did you hear that? Did you know that sometimes what God does in your life and in my life, some of the things that God is trying to destroy, He does by turning us over to the devil? Have you ever, have you ever committed a sin and afterwards you go, Oh God, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I watch that? Oh God, I just feel so dirty. So, oh God, I'm, I'm not going to do it anymore. And then you do it again. Oh God... God set me free of this. Then you do it again. And you know what God says? Okay, I'll tell you what we'll do. Let me just turn you over to the enemy for a while. And all of a sudden you get a good taste of walking in a habitual, willful disobedience and you're feeling the full impact spiritually of an enemy now that is a slander, an accuser, and is attacking you questioning your, your eternal security, making statements like this. Well, I tell you what, you've done that for the tenth time. Undoubtedly, you're not a Christian. You're not saved. You don't tell nobody else you're a Christian. God knows don't do that. Don't share your testimony. What are you getting ready to do? Get down on your knees and pray? Get on your feet. You don't deserve to pray. That's the enemy. See, the enemy's coming at you now with everything. You know why? Because God just said, there you go. You want to run with the enemy? I'll let you run with the enemy. And you get a good taste of Satan. You get a good taste of the devil. And I'm going to tell you what he'll do. He'll bring you to the point of repentance and brokenness for the destruction of the flesh so that the soul will be saved. Well, I wrote down, parent, if you coddle your children, you enable them, and you may sometimes rescue them from what God is trying to do through the enemy. You know, sometimes your child is in, in an adult child is living in willful disobedience, and rather you going in there saving them, you may be doing them a disservice because God may have done this. And you know what God's saying? Would you please leave me alone and let me do what I need to do? Let's let the enemy have them for a while. Two more. Number eight, what Jesus has already done. And I love this. What did Jesus say? I prayed for you, Peter. Can you imagine that? Did you know that right now Jesus is making intercession for you and I? Did you know that? Right now the Bible says that he's seated next to the Father and he's making intercession. He's pleading our case. Everything. He's making intercession. Every time you take a request to him, he goes to the Father. Number nine, last, the prayer of Jesus. Did you notice real quickly, first Jesus said, that your, Peter, that your faith will not fail because that's what the enemy's after. Everybody listen, and I'll close in a moment. The enemy is after your faith. Turn to your neighbor and say that. The enemy is after your faith. Okay, turn to your neighbor and say, the enemy is after my faith. And you may say, well, wait a minute. Why would the enemy even care? Everybody look this way. Because you're saved by grace through faith. It's the gift of God, right? Without faith, it's impossible to please God, right? Somebody getting a phone call? You see, well, I hope it's Jesus and not the other one. 
You see, you can't be saved without faith. You can't please God without faith. You can't walk without faith. So your prized possession, listen, he, hey, listen, he can't get your security in Christ. That's settled. Did you hear me? You're, eternal, you're eternally secure in Christ. You're justified already as if you'd never sinned. You're secure in Christ. It's finished right there. It was finished on the cross. You've repented of your sin. You put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It'll be Sarah's responsibility to remind Caroline, even through the teenage years, you are secure in Christ. You've been saved. You know that. You've got the helmet of salvation. But he's after your faith. He can't get your salvation. He's after your faith. Okay, number two, secondly, this trial, Jesus said, will give you the ability to build faith in others. He says, listen, I prayed for you that your faith will not fail, and when you've come through this, what does he tell you to do? Strengthen your brothers. Now, I wrote this down, listen to it. How your failure will be the means by which he encourages and strengthens somebody else. You know, I had somebody carry out a criminal act, and they came to me, to confess it and you know I, I think they the, and hey listen it, it upset me but you know what I had to say at a certain point I did the same thing I did the same thing and let me tell you what I had to do to make it right I had to confess it I had to repent of it and then I had to I, and then I had to take full ownership and, 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 and make it right whatever make it right meant you see, sometimes you and I get turned over to the devil. Th sometimes things are the way they are, but let me tell you what God does. God holds his hand open. God's doing something, and then afterwards, if it's sin, God brings you to repentance. You know what Paul said in 2 Corinthians? Paul told the church at Corinth when he told him, turn him over to the devil so that his flesh will be destroyed and his soul will be saved. In 2 Corinthians, Paul said, back off of him. You're about to destroy him. Stop it. You've disciplined him enough. Go out there and bring him back in. He's repentant. Reach back out and bring him back in. Do you know what God does with Job? you know what he does with Job? He gives Job double everything that Satan took away. And you may say, well, he didn't give him double kids. No, he didn't because his kids just relocated to heaven. He'd see them again. He gave him ten more children. He had ten already in heaven. And he doubled his camels, his oxen, and everything else. That's God. Well, go ahead and stand. Let me, let me, let me close with this. I don't know. I'm, well, I haven't been that long. We're doing all right. Sheila and I, we were watching um, something on, on prime time. It's, it's, um, it was on Lee Strobel. Now, anybody that knows anything about Lee Strobel, Lee, Lee Strobel was an investigative reporter with the Chicago Tribune, okay? He had basically, in the days that Therese probably would love to live in and have long since passed, the days of newspaper, the day of everybody getting their newspaper, reading the news, those days. He worked for the Chicago Tribune. He was an atheist, he cared nothing about God. But he was, a, he was a very good reporter. He tells in this documentary that his wife became a Christian. He said, when my wife became a Christian, he said, I wanted to divorce her. He said, I thought about divorce. 
Here this brilliant mind was an atheist. His wife converts to Christ and then she begins to pray for him. He said, let me tell you what kind of man he was. He said, I was a drunkard. He said, I was a drunk. He said, I was mean. He said, I was a good reporter, but that was about it. He said when he would come into his home, his little girl would be playing in the living room with her toys. When she heard her dad come in, she would gather up all her toys and go to her room. She was afraid of him. But his wife kept praying, and Lee Strobel said finally there came that moment. that he said, You know what he set out to do? He set out to disprove Christ and the resurrection. He said, I'm going to be, a, he, Therese, he said, I'm going to be a good reporter. I'm going to do a full investigation and I'm going to determine if there's any truth to this at all. And he went out and he began to do his research. He went through all of every possible glitch, everything that he could find. He came away and like C.I. Schofield, who was a lawyer who sought to do the same thing, Lee Strobel finally found himself on his knees after he had after he had done all this research and he, he said, Jesus Christ, you are who you say you are. And he wrote the book, The Case for Christ. Then he wrote The Case for Christmas. I think he wrote The Case for Easter. And now he's finished the book, The Case for Heaven. You know what he said? He said, Therese, and you probably understand this. He said, like an investigator, he said, I set out to determine, is there a heaven? And he said, Hundreds, thousands of near-death experiences, looking at people, looking at their experiences, and studying and working through all of that. And he came to the conclusion that there is eternal life. There is definitely heaven. There is something beyond this life. The last thing he did, he said, I know what I'm going to do. He went, to, he went and he said, the last part of his book, he said, I'm going to visit a man dying. So we went to Louis, Louis, uh, Louis Palau. Louis Palau, he's, uh, I think he's from Argentina. He's preached to over a billion people. He, he went to England. He had a cough and he came home and he went to his doctor and his doctor said, oh, this is nothing. It probably won't be anything. Don't worry about it. And, and Louis Palau said that he was getting ready to walk out of the office and the doctor said, well, I'll tell you what we'll do. Let's just do a quick x-ray. Carried him in there, did a quick x-ray. And his doctor said, Louie, he said, I need to put you in touch with an oncologist friend of mine. He sent him to an oncologist. He said, this guy didn't have no bedside manner at all. He looked at the x-rays, did a few tests, and he said, I'm sorry. He said, Mr. Palau, you're going to die. At best, you got about nine months. And Louis Palau said he was just, he, he was, he was just, Take him back, he said, we, you mean, what about surgery? He said, wouldn't do no good. He's talking like this. He said, well, what about treatment? Uh, what, about, what about treatment? He said, we, uh, we can make your life a little bit uh, more pleasant, make it a little comfortable for you, but move on up. You're going to be dead within the year. You need to, Mr. Palau, you need to get your things in order. Louis Palau said this, when Lee Strobel, the last part of his book, The Case for Heaven, he went to visit Louis Palau. He said he sat down with him and he said, what's it feel like, a man who's preached over a billion people, what does it feel like 
to be getting ready to die. Do you know what this man said? Man, I was so thankful. He said, oh my, he said, the satanic attacks have been unbelievable. Lee Strobel said, you mean a man that's preached over a billion people around the world, one of the most famous evangelists of all time? You mean you doubt it? He said, oh, and he wasn't saying it but through tears. He said, I tell you, he said, I've doubted my salvation. I've doubted my relationship with Christ. I've doubted my faith. I've doubted. I've went through agonizing satanic attacks that just about have crippled me and destroyed me, left me in tears. He said, but there was always the presence of the Lord that would come back and remind me of that helmet of salvation. And Louis Palau died, and his son was at his graveside. And his son was saying, I gave my parents hell. I was a bad kid. I made that evangelist who preached over a billion people, I made his life horrible. I was not a good man. And people often look at me and say, well, you're probably that way because your dad neglected you or this, that. And he said, and I always look at him and say, no, I had a great dad. I was just a bad kid making bad decisions going down the wrong road. He said, but my dad never quit loving me. My dad never quit praying for me. And he said, today I carry on his work. You may be at a place right now where God says maybe because of habitual sin in your life and let me tell you don't play games with God because I can tell you what God will do that I've been there when God does that because of willful defiant disobedience and lets you get a good taste of the enemy my friend you better come quickly to the point of repentance because there's nothing but hell down that road and I'm going to tell you what he'll do. He'll make your life a living hell. And if God, if nothing else fails, God will take you home prematurely. Because he says, I won't let you live like that. Come on home. Sometimes God does that because you and I are living a holy life. We're doing what we know to be right. We're trying to live in obedience. And God says, Satan is slandering. And God says, I'm, listen to this. I'm getting ready to take you to a different spiritual level. I'm getting ready to take you to a place of maturity that you've never been, and the only way to get there is for me to do that. And my friend, let me tell you, listen to this, and then I'll pray, I promise. Satan is running his mouth before God about Job. He attacks Job with everything. He literally takes his, his livelihood. He takes his kids. He destroys his marriage. Why don't you curse God and die? That's what his wife said. But I love what John Phillips said in his commentary, and it's so powerful. He said that when Job, by Job's righteous, godly life, shut the mouth of Satan, and we never hear him again in the entire Old Testament. He never speaks again from the book of Job to the, through Malachi. 
We don't hear them until Matthew chapter 4 when he looks at Jesus and he begins to slander once again. You there? He may have you there because he's got something he's doing in your life. That's the only way he can do it and you'll never be the same. And your testimony and witness of what you're going through will strengthen multitudes of others who are yet to go through that. Trust him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, dear Lord, that you love us, and we thank you, dear Lord, for your word. Oh, Lord, one day when we get to heaven, and I think about right now, I think about the writer of Hebrews who said that we are encompassed by this great cloud of witnesses that right now, that dear Lord, our our, our family, for some of us in this room, our dads, our moms, for some of us in this room, our grandparents, great-grandparents, our brother, a sister, somebody who's passed, some in this room who have lost a child, some in this room who have lost a child while they were in the womb. May they all realize that right now they are that crowd of witnesses that are watching us, rooting us on. And Lord, I can't help but smile and think to myself that Peter is nudging my mom and saying, he's right. And my mom who settled her salvation on her deathbed is smiling and saying, I know Peter. Billy and Ruth Graham are leaning over the banisters, D.L. Moody, my grandson in heaven. Dear Lord, they're all leaning over there and they're saying, oh my goodness, just keep trusting Jesus. Walk it out, walk it out in faith. You'll be home soon. It's all right. He's got you in the palm of his hand. So Lord, I pray today that if there's a man or a woman, a boy or girl, who may be going through a storm, going through a difficulty right now, dear Lord, that just feels almost as if they can't even take another step. May they realize that, God, you have a plan and a purpose and a will. And that, Lord, as old Steve Taylor said, who just recently buried his wife after 53 years, he looked at me one day and said, oh, Jeff, he said, Satan goes about like a roaring lion, but he's on God's chain. He's on God's chain. He's not a loose cannon. So, Lord, I pray if there's someone here that doesn't know you, that they will repent of their sin, give their heart and life to you. If there's some here that are walking in disobedience, that today they, dear Lord, will truly repent, truly turn away from that sin, that stronghold, whatever it may be, and be the man or woman that you've called them to be. And God will give you all the praise. And we pray this, and all everyone said in the name of Jesus, you come. You come.